This morning, before we begin, I want to pray uh, for Detective Edgar Rios uh, of the Trenton Police Department. Um, many of you know he was uh, shot in the line of duty on, uh, I guess it was Thursday uh, or so. Uh, he and his partner, his partner is uh, out of the hospital, that's good news. Uh, but Detective Rios is still in uh, a medically induced coma in order that he might be able to, to heal. Um, so we want to pray for him, we want to pray for the police department, the leadership of uh, the city of Trenton. As you may be aware, um, 30 people have lost their life this year uh, as a result of murder in the city of Trenton, 30. Here we are, we're uh, mid-August. The highest number of people that were ever uh, killed in Trenton was 31 for a full year. And, and here we're, we're going to, it looks like, fly past that number. Um, so it's uh, dark times uh, in our society and certainly the value of life that it could be taken so easily. And so we want to go before the Lord and pray that people's hearts would be changed. Laws are important, certainly, but you really don't need a law when your heart is changed. And so let's pray that God would do that work. Amen? And let's pray for uh, Detective Rios. Father, we just begin by lifting up uh, Detective Rios to you, and we thank you, Lord, for his commitment uh, to the Trenton Police Force, 30-some years. Lord, we, uh, we just know from his personal life, his commitment to the community, through various clubs and activities and social organizations, Lord, uh, things uh, to make the community in which he lives just a, a better place. And Lord, each day, he and his, uh, his fellow officers, detectives and others, Lord, um, taking their lives in many ways into their hands as they seek to help uh, create a society of order. And so, Father, we want to lift him up to you, and we pray that you would bring about a full healing uh, in his life. But Lord, we also want to pray that even in the midst of this induced coma, Lord, we know that you're powerful and you're able to communicate, Lord, uh, to his heart. And we pray that uh, you would be working in him in such a way, you'd be blessing him, you'd be drawing him, I don't know his relationship with you, but to a deeper understanding of who you are. Father, you'd bring good as a result of this. We pray for his family. I suspect for many of them, this is going to be harder for them as they're worried about him, their fellow officers worried about him, wondering uh, scared maybe for their own lives or concerned certainly or maybe wanting to even respond in bitterness and anger and harshness and so father we pray lord that again you would bring good as a result of this we pray for the leaders of trenton both of the police department as well as uh, the elected officials lord that you might uh, move upon their hearts to seek you i know that that special called meeting they decided to open it with prayer but, Father, it's more than just saying a prayer. It's about in the deepest places seeking you. And so, Father, we ask that you would move all throughout that city and all throughout Mercer County and across the river into Bucks and Morrisville and other places, Lord, and you drive us to our knees. Lord, we see the fruit of our own labor. And it's wickedness continually. And so, Father, drive us to our knees, to a breaking point where we as a people cry out for you. And, Lord, we ask that when we do that, that you would heal our land. Stop the killings, Lord, as you change people's hearts. Father, teach us today. We want to honor you, Lord, and we believe that coming and sitting presenting our hearts open before you, laying them out so that fully exposed, Lord, Sort of all the protection of trying to keep ourselves safe, Lord, we just we put it all aside and we lay ourselves out and we say, Lord, 
speak to me and give me the courage to obey. So, Father, as we do that, teach us. Show us more of your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everyone. We are in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 30. So please go ahead and start turning there if you haven't already done so. We left off in the middle of a story, an account of the life of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, as you may recall, was a fantastic king. He was a reformer king that came to the nation of Judah at just the right time when the nation had really gone off the deep end. They uh, actually boarded up the temple itself. There would be no more worship of Jehovah. We're moving in a new direction. And they began to set up these altars and uh, many temple things all over the city of or the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. They were done with Jehovah. They were moving in a new direction. And now Hezekiah, he replaces his dad. He becomes the king of the nation. He has a heart for the Lord. And he decides that, no, 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 we're not changing things. We're going to worship and serve uh, the uh, one true God. And he opens up the temple. He destroys all of the altars that are there. He restores temple worship. And he does an amazing thing. Not only does he call his own people and say, come, let's worship again the way... and the throngs will come, we'll see. But he also extends an invitation to the Jews that are in the northern kingdom. And you recall that the nation had gone through a civil war of sorts for 250 years, roughly. Uh, There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom, separate kings going their own directions. And the northern kingdom despised the Lord. And they went in all sorts of directions, worshipped all sorts of other gods. And they certainly did not make their way down to the temple. We even saw that when the very first king of the northern kingdom came into power he created false gods to prevent the people from the need to go down to the temple to worship you can just worship the gods that i've created for you and we see here that hezekiah has invited the people of judah but then he extends an invitation blows my mind to the people of the north and he says you should come too you should come to seek the grace of god and the mercy of god and he'll forgive you i know it's been 250 years i know you've worshiped all sorts of other gods I know that you've been at war with my people and have killed hundreds of thousands of them and have taken a couple hundred thousand into captivity. But beside all that, let's seek the Lord for his forgiveness and see what the Lord will do. And he knows what the Lord will do and he'll tell him. He'll forgive you. And so he writes up a letter. The letter is basically summarized in one verse. Chapter 30, verse 9, it says, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children, they'll find compassion with their captors and return to the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and he is merciful and he will not turn his face from you if you return to him. What an amazing invitation to a people that are completely guilty and yet saying to them, God will forgive you if you return to him. Now we left off with the, uh, the mailman, if you will, loading up the mail truck and they're about to head out into the northern kingdom. I told you this week not to read ahead. How many of you did not read ahead? Fantastic. That's good. That's a good response. I didn't want you to read ahead because I didn't want you to ruin the story here uh, for yourself and the surprise of the story. Starting in verse 10, we come to discover, well, how did they respond? This crusade, if you will, that goes out to present the gospel to these people, how did they respond to it? Well, we read in verse 10 of chapter 30. It says, So the couriers went from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and they mocked them. They laugh them to scorn, and they mock them. 
You know, I, I read that, and the anticipation in my heart was building and building and building. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. They're going to flood back into to the church, and they're going to be so excited about being restored to faith. And then I read, they laughed the messenger and mocked them to scorn. And honestly, oh, God, what a letdown in the story. You know, to read that there, I suspect they said something to the effect of, yeah, like we're going to go all the way down there for some church service. No, we're good. Thanks a lot. And they begin to laugh them. They begin to mock them. And sadly, that's the response of the majority of the people here of the northern kingdom. Let me ask you a question. How many of you like to be laughed at and mocked? That's what I thought. No, nobody likes to be laughed at and mocked. And so one of the things that we will do, especially as it comes to our faith, we don't want to be laughed at, we don't want to be mocked in any circumstance, and especially as it comes to our faith, one of the things that tends to happen is we tend to protect ourselves, we tend to guard ourselves, so that I will never be laughed at and mocked. See, if I never tell you about the grace of God and the mercy of God, if I never look at a circumstances in your life and say, this is how Jesus helps me in this, and I want to bring that to you. If I never bring that out there and never lay it out there, then I will never, ever be laughed at and mocked. And so we never present it there. Let me tell you very clearly, very honestly, there have been many situations in my walk with the Lord, and I'm not just talking about when I first came to the Lord. I've been with the Lord for 25 years now. Even this last year, maybe this last week, there have been instances where I have made a determination, I'm not going to tell him or her that, because I'm not quite sure how they're going to respond. They may not like that, they may laugh at me, they may mock me, they may not want to be my friend anymore here. So I, I think, and maybe I'm just the only guy, but maybe you guys are, are similar to me, I think there are times where we make the conscious decision to protect ourselves because we don't want to be rejected, we don't want to be laughed at, and we don't want to be mocked. Well, the problem, though, with my thinking, when I make that determination, I don't want them to reject me, the problem is they're not rejecting me. It's very clear that what they're rejecting is the message. That's what they're rejecting. So let me ask you this. How many of you know of postal workers that take it personally when people come and they get the mail from the postal worker? And what's something you don't want to get? Probably a bill or something like that. So they go out to the mailbox. They're out there gardening or whatever it may be. The mailman or lady comes up and there they get the mail from the mail person. And they look and the first one is a collection agency or a bill. Well, are they delighted to see that? Probably not. Some people, you can imagine, they might respond like, ah, this junk, and they throw it in the trash can, right there in front of the mailman. How does the mailman feel about you rejecting that mail? They could care less. It's not them that you're rejecting. They're rejecting the particular letter. And similarly, when we come to present a message to people, some of them are going to reject that message. Don't take it personally, because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the message. Now, if you look in our passage, why do they... Well, then why take the chance? Because we know that while many, maybe most, will reject the message, there will be those that accept it. You know, somebody probably in your life looked at you and maybe was hesitant to share the gospel with you because they weren't quite sure how you would respond to that message when it was presented to you. But how did you respond? I don't know what the process was, but eventually you ended up in this particular place, more than likely in a relationship with the Lord. Somebody took that chance to present to you, and we take the chance to present that message to a person or persons because we know that some will accept and some will receive. Look at verse 11, because that's what happens here. It says, however, some of the men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun, those are tribes of the northern kingdom, some of the men of those places, they humbled themselves 
and they came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Your job, my job, is to be faithful. As the Lord prompts you to speak into a person's life, speak into a person's life. And it's God's job to move in that person's heart to respond. Continuing to verse 13, it says, And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. And a very great assembly, uh, a very great assembly. They set to work, they removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burnt incense. And they took away and they threw them into the Kidron Valley. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And so they're going to celebrate the Passover, but you got all these altars to these false gods. That's the, the altars there talking about the incense and so on. And they said, you know what, we're done with these. Hezekiah gathers them all up. The Kidron Valley is just outside there of the temple, at the bottom of the temple mount area there. And they throw them down there and they destroy these things. They're going to worship the Lord. Verse 15 continues. It says, now the priests and the Levites, they were ashamed so that they consecrated themselves and, bur- and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. One of the things that we saw last week uh, in either chapter 29 or 30, I forget, but we saw that so many people came to celebrate the Passover that the priests that were on duty couldn't keep up with it. And so they began, to, they put out the call, we need more priests, send some more guys, because not all the priests would work at the same time, there'd be a rotation, send some more people down. And by the time it took for them to get there and to consecrate themselves and to be ready to offer the sacrifice, it, the people would leave or something, or they'd be sitting around waiting, and so they brought in some temporary workers, if you will, and they began to do the job. So here when it speaks of the priests and the Levites being ashamed, uh, because they themselves weren't ready to offer it, and they wanted to be. And so they went through that particular process here. But I think there's also another way that you can look at this particular verse here, and it's an idea, uh, it's this idea, that you have the so-called professional Christian worker, the preacher, the evangelist, or something like that, the so-called professional Christian worker, and then the lay people. Now let me just begin by saying this first here. I don't believe in such a differentiation. I don't think there's lay people. I don't think there's professionals. I think we're all called to be servants of the Lord and to fulfill the ministry that he has given us to do. That being said, I know I kind of expect certain things of myself. This is what I do full time. And sometimes when I see people in the congregation that outpray me, outserve me, I'm humbled by that. Because I look at their lives and I say, here's a guy that gets up every day and goes to his full-time job and he puts in extra hours and he takes care of his lawn and he does all this. And then he's there Saturday morning doing it for somebody else. I'm humbled by that. Here's a guy, you know, I'm supposed to be this professional Christian. And man, I wish I could pray like that guy or that gal. I'm humbled by that. Shame of face or put to shame, uh, to use the phrase that, that is here, by the commitment of the people. Now, that motivates me personally. I think sometimes we can look at other people, we can observe their life, we can observe their example, and we can be discouraged as a result of it. I can't pray like that guy. And so you never pray. Well, I can't do as much as they do, so you never do anything. And when we come to the place where we're looking at another person, instead of looking at their life being motivated and saying, man, I want to serve with the same vigor and passion as they do. But when we come to the place and instead of that thinking, we come to and say, you know what, why bother? and the sense of inadequacy is so great that we do nothing as a result, then there's a problem in our thinking. It's good to look to another as an example and to motivate yourself in that regard, but whenever it discourages you to the point, then you know your eyes are on the wrong place. 
You've taken your eyes off of the Lord and it's too much on man. And now you're being discouraged by it. Get your eyes back on the Lord and serve. Use that as a motivating factor to serve with a new sense of purpose, a new sense of vigor. And if you look at verse 16 in our passage, that's what's happening with the priest. They're ashamed, if you will, by the level of enthusiasm and energy that is coming from the people. They want to be at that place as well. So we see in verse 16, and so the priest, they now, they take their accustomed post, they're ready, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. They throw the blood that they receive from the hand of the Levites. That means they uh, kind of anoint the, uh, the altar there. It's not like they're throwing it on the ground or something. They're throwing the blood of the sacrifice there upon the altar, the table. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves, but now they are. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. Because a majority of the people, now this is the people as opposed to the priests, many of them from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, they had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. So the point that's happening here is you have a majority of the people that are coming from the northern tribes, the names there, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, a majority of these people, they're coming down with hearts that are ready to seek the Lord, but they hadn't followed all of those prescribed rules to seek the Lord and to celebrate the Passover. And again, notice where they're from. Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, all northern tribes. It had been 250 years since this sort of worship, temple worship and stuff, had been celebrated by the people of the north the northern kingdom. And so for many of these people, they had no idea of the rules of the Passover and the procedures. All they knew is that in their heart, despite the fact that most of their neighbors were making fun of the whole idea and mocking the idea, they knew that in their hearts, they wanted to seek the Lord God of heaven. And so they made their way down to Jerusalem and they just sort of showed up. And they're like, all right, we're ready. What do we got? Where do we go? And they're like, well, you know, you're not consecrated. You're not this, you're not that, and so on. But these are guys that are ready to seek the Lord, but they hadn't followed sort of all of these rules. They had a burden to seek the Lord. And I I think verse 18 is really, 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 let me say that, important to notice how Hezekiah responds to this burden that the people have. Look at verse 18, it said, And so Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone whose heart is to seek God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he hid, or excuse me, he healed the people. Now these people aren't coming to Jerusalem unprepared as an act of rebellion. They're not entering anything. I ain't doing all that. You should be happy I'm here. That's not their attitude. That's not their heart. They want to come, but they just didn't know all of the procedures and the rules. And I think what we see here is an example where the Lord is more interested in the condition of the people's hearts than he is in the proper completion of form and ritual according to some sort of laid out process that has to be exact here. And I think the application for us would be this. As new believers come into Calvary or into your small group or your home group or even into your life, or maybe not yet believers, maybe someone comes to the community center to play basketball and Nobody's there, you know, for whatever reason. So they say, I'll stop by that room that looks like some community meeting is going on and I care about it. And they end up here in church. They're here, they're with us, but maybe they don't know yet all the rules, if you will, of Christian decorum. You know, so maybe they come in and maybe their clothes are a little too tight and revealing. Or maybe they're a little too loose and cut a little too low and revealing. 
Or maybe they come in and they, they pepper and salt and pepper their language with some words that you and I, as followers of the Lord, maybe we haven't used in a long time, and we probably wouldn't use those words. Well, maybe they don't know. They're just glad they didn't say the big word, you know, or words. And so they're throwing some things out there that might, you know, kind of cause your ears to a little bit. What is our response to people in those particular circumstances? I'll give you an example. We were doing our um, quarter life thing that we have here. We were having a picnic a month or so ago, and there was a new uh, couple, of, uh, the, a dating couple in that age group, and they were going to come and they were going to attend this particular uh, quarter life meeting. And as you would do, if somebody invites you to house, what do you do? You call up and you say, hey, can I bring something? Well, they called up and they said, hey, could I bring a case of, you want a case of beer or something? You know, we're having a picnic. Now, what could the response have been? Josh answered the call. It was his house. The thing was that he answers the phone call and he could have said, a case of beer? Look, man, I don't know what you think you are and what you think we are, but we don't do that sort of thing. And he could have responded very, very harshly in that circumstance there. He could have went into a long thing about the dangers of alcohol and how it's destroying you know, nations and families and people. He could have gone into a long thing about his own testimony and where alcohol fits into that. But instead, he looks at the circumstance. I love what Josh did here. Josh, the guy who did announcements today. He looked at the circumstance, and he decided to respond in grace as the Lord would respond in that circumstance. There's people that don't know. And so he said, no, no, I was thinking maybe a potato salad. Could you bring that or something like that? You know, he just spoke very lovingly into that circumstance. And I think that that is important. How do we respond to those sorts of things? Hezekiah is an example of responding with grace and responding with mercy. Responding sort of with a prayer that says, God, would you just look on their heart? Here's a guy that wants to be gracious and, and kind. Lord, here's a guy that's at church. Or a girl, maybe their outfit isn't such and such. Or maybe their words aren't such and such. Lord, would you just speak into their heart and grow them, Lord? You know, my pastor, Joe Foch from Calvary Philly, used to always say that he'd found that the Holy Spirit is, a mu- is much better at his job than I am. And I think that's true. You know, sometimes I want to change everybody and make sure everybody's in line with what it is I want them to do and so on. And I think God wants to change people. Sure he does. He's changed me. There was a time in my life where certain words would come out and I would wear revealing clothes and people <laughs> didn't want to see those things. You know, there was a time in my life where those things happened. And God changed me. He changed me from the inside out. And when we leave it to the Lord and let him guide and let him direct and let him grow that person and minister into their heart, he'll do a changing work in them. And no doubt there will be a time, as you've been a friend into their life and sort of a, a counsel into their life, where they're going to ask you, do you think it's okay that I say these things in that tone? And then you can speak into their life and answer it. And they're going to observe. And so I love here how Hezekiah uh, responds with grace and mercy to sort of this unchurched crowd so that they're in their hearts they could come and they can seek the Lord without sort of all the hang-ups of getting themselves on the outside right before God can do a work on the inside in their hearts. So as we continue into verse 21, this is a lengthy section. It's found in your Bibles. We didn't put it up on the screen. It says, And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem, they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests, they praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. And so they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast another seven days. And so they kept it another seven days with gladness. 
For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep for offerings. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah, the priests and Levites, the whole assembly that came out of Israel, the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel, and the sojourners who lived in Judah, they rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And then the priests and the Levites, they arose and they blessed the people. And their voice was heard and the prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. And then one more verse in chapter 31. It says, now when all of this was finished, all of Israel who were present, they went out to the cities of Judah. They broke in pieces the pillars and they cut down the high places and the altars throughout all of Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh until they had destroyed them all. Then all the people of Israel, they returned to their cities, every man to his possession. We, this section here, these eight or ten verses, are describing a revival that is taking place within the hearts of the people of Judah. Notice some of the key words of this section. Verse 21, it describes the circumstances as being marked with great gladness, it says. It also says in verse 21, it describes that they're worshiping with all of their might. Verse 23, things are so great, they said, let's do another seven days. They tack on another seven days of this worship. And then it speaks there again of, with great gladness. Verse 26 describes great joy. And then in verse 26, it says that nothing like this had ever happened uh, until from the days of, uh, since the days of Solomon. And then finally, what I see here is the people's response. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 31, the response then is for the people to go and destroy the idols and to follow the Lord in complete consecration. So what's happening again? What's happening is there is a revival that is taking place in the land, and as in all revivals, it is marked by great joy, great gladness, and repentance. The people are changing. their Great joy, great gladness, and repentance. Changing. Now, what were the conditions that led to the revival? It wasn't the holiness police that are running around checking on what people are saying and what they are wearing and what they're bringing to picnics. That wasn't what brought about this revival. Because there are those that will teach that will revival comes, and I believe in revival, and I pray that God would do a revival. But there are those that will teach that revival can't come upon us as a people until we are, have a greater commitment to holiness. That somehow our greater commitment will bring about the revival. But the pattern of Scripture is different. It's not about when we get serious about holiness that God will pour out himself upon ourselves and our community. But the pattern of Scripture is that God's grace and goodness are first seen. And then the people will begin to pursue holiness. So holiness doesn't bring about revival. Revival brings about holiness. Revival doesn't bring about the grace of God. Grace brings about revival. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the goodness of God that drives us to repentance. It's the goodness of God, the grace of God that brings about revival, not the holiness police. And so I would encourage you even in your own personal life, it's not necessarily going to be your greater commitment to a personal holiness. It'll be your greater understanding of who God is. 
as a person. One of the things that we pray a lot, and I don't know about you, but in my mind when I'm praying, I'm picturing the idea of me coming into the presence of God and sitting before Him and getting closer and closer and closer. And the closer I get to Him, His glorious light envelops me, if you will. Sounds a little weird, I know. But it exposes every area of who I am. I'm understanding Him and His holiness and having revealed in me, me and my wickedness. And as I do that, I'm saying, Lord, I'm I'm just repenting in a greater way. Repenting in a greater way, ironically, because people around me might say, you're a good guy. We knew you 20 years ago. My goodness, lots have changed in your life here. But I know, compared to him, how far short I fall. And the deepest areas of my life that he reveals and he wants to sanctify and he wants to cleanse. As I get closer to him, personal revival takes place in my life. And it's the same thing for our church and our community. Seek him, the scripture is showing. That's the pattern of scripture. And the revival, the holiness will come as a result of that. Now, verse 2 continues, chapter 31, 2. It says, So Hezekiah appointed the division of the priest, of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service. The priests, the Levites, burnt offerings, peace offerings, to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord to give thanks and praise. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was the burnt offerings uh, for morning and evening, for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feast, as it is written, in the law of the Lord. And so, essentially, as Solomon had done many years earlier, and now Hezekiah is doing, the priests and the Levites were assigned their duty. This wasn't going to be a one-time women's retreat weekend, men's retreat weekend, where some neat things happen in your life, and you know you went back and it lasted for a week or so. This was going to be a steady and consistent change taking place in the heart of the people. So the priests and the Levites, they're appointed to their duties to keep up the work of seeking the Lord and letting him show himself to them, and they could walk in his glorious light. Now verse 4 continues, So Hezekiah, he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem, excuse me, to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. And as soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel, they gave in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine and oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe and everything. And the people of Israel and Judah who lived in the cities of Judah, they also brought in the tithe of the cattle and the sheep, and the tithe of the the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and they laid them in heaps or in piles. And in the third month they began to pile up the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. So here you have the priests and the Levites. In order for them to devote themselves to the service of the Lord on behalf of the people of God, Hezekiah says, you know what? These people, they got families to feed. They got houses to pay for and things like that. So we're going to provide so that they don't have to go out and get a job nine to five, but instead they can devote themselves to the work of the Lord. He says, bring the tithe. What I appreciate about verse four is the invitation that Hezekiah gives, how simple it is. You know, I just read to you about four or five verses there. There's a small little section where he extends the invite, and all the rest of it looks at their response. Just a simple invite. No manipulative techniques. No repeated over and over extended pleas. If you really love the Lord, you'll take your checkbook out right now. If you want to see the work of the Lord continue, then you'll take your checkbook out right now, or your credit card, or we're passing around the credit card swiper. Please, swipe it twice if you could. You know, this morning here. None of these repeated pleas, manipulative techniques. Just a simple, hey, here's the work of the Lord. 
In order to do that, this is what is needed for that particular purpose here. And I love the people's response. You know, one of the things that I love about Calvary Chapel, in in my experience growing up, uh, I came to the Lord in uh, 89. I began to attend a Calvary about 91, something like that. And so, if you will, as a believer, I grew up in a Calvary Chapel, uh, learning what ministry was and and things like that. One of the things I appreciated about it was just a simple invitation and this philosophy. Where God guides, God provides. If God is guiding in this particular direction, I don't have to beat up the sheep. They didn't have to beat us up to pay for it. It was just a simple, hey, here's an opportunity. One thing I love, Pastor Scott Taransky used to be here uh, years ago, last year and beyond. Uh, He would write right around uh, Christmas, just an e-news that went out, and in there it said, hey, we have a care fund. And with the care fund, we bless those in our church and outside of our church, people in our community, that have needs, especially during this time. They want to get their kids presents, and it's either groceries or presents or gifts, or maybe they need, it's a single mom, she needs gas money, something like that. We want to bless people like that. And he would put the need out there. And it was so awesome just to see how the people of the church got moved on their heart. People would give to that particular care fund, and the money would be there, and then we could use it to bless people in that regard. No repeated pleas and manipulating techniques. Don't you love people? Please give to the people and bring up a poor, pitiful-looking little kid here or something. Just a simple, here's the work. Do you want to join us in what we're doing? And people respond. And so that's sort of the philosophy we take there. But look at verse 5. It begins to speak, and beyond, it begins to speak how the people give in abundance. So much so that the offerings begin to pile up outside the temple. So the priests don't have enough time to take it and distribute it and give it to various places because they're piling up there. You know that a miracle is happening in the heart of the people. And again, that's how God works. He moves in the heart of his people to support the work that he is doing. And so verse 8, Hezekiah comes to the temple and he sees all these offerings that are outside of the temple gathering up. I don't know if in his mind he's thinking, aren't you giving them out to the people? Aren't you giving them out to the priests so that they can go home and pay their mortgage and stuff like that? You know what's going on? So he says in verse 8, it says, When Hezekiah and the princes came and they saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned the, the priests and the Levites about the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest who was of the house of Zadok, he answers Hezekiah, and he said, Well, since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we've eaten enough and we've had enough. We have plenty left over. For the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount that is left. So Hezekiah, seeing the pile, says, what's up? What's going on with all this? And the priest responds simply, we have nowhere else to put it. There's just so much that is coming in. Tell the people to stop, it says another place in the Bible, which I think is really, really cool. No more offerings. We got enough, you know, that kind of thing. Here they say, look, we have nowhere to put it. So Hezekiah says, well, you know what we'll do? We'll build some rooms off of the temple here. There'll be chambers for, if you will, for the treasures. So looking at verse 11, he says, then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, you know, just off additions to the building, and they prepared them, and they faithfully, the people faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithe, and the dedicated things. Continuing in verse 12, it says, Now the chief officer in charge of them was Conaniah the Levite, with Shimei his brother as second, while Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahath, Azahel, Jeremoth, Josebed, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahath, and Benaiah, they were overseers assisting Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, by the appointment of Hezekiah the king and Azariah the chief officer of the house of God. 
And Kor, the son of Imna, the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the freewill offerings to God to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. Also, Eden, Maniamin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah, they were faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priest to distribute the portions to their brothers, old and young alike, by divisions, except those enrolled by genealogy, males from three years old and up. All who entered the house of the Lord as the duty of each day required for their service, according to the offices, by their divisions. And the enrollment of the, enrollment of the priests was according to their father's houses, that of the Levites from 20 years old and up, and according to their offices, by their divisions. They were enrolled with all their children, their wives, their sons, their daughters, the whole assembly, for they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. And for the sons of Aaron, the priests who were in the fields of common land belonging to their cities, there were men in the several cities who were designated by name to distribute the portions of these tithes to every male among the priests and to every male among the priests and to everyone among the Levites who was enrolled. Now, I read these sections just like you. I see the list of names and I'm like, okay, that's good, thanks. You know, it doesn't shake me, you know, to the point of like, that is awesome, Lord. Thank you for the list of names there. I think there's 19 names that are listed in that section there. Um, I imagine there's something real, real significant, but just a simple surface application is the Lord knows the names of these servants. And these are guys that are simply delivering paychecks in some regards for the church. And the Lord knows the names, each one of these guys' names, and he gives it to us. And again, you know, sometimes the service that we do for the Lord, whether it be in the church or some ministry or uh, some way the Lord is leading us to serve in our community or something like that, sometimes we could look at those tasks and think, this stinks. What, I'm not doing anything of value here. Nobody recognizes what I'm doing, all these sorts of things. It's a reminder to us that the Lord knows. The Lord observes. The Lord takes record. It's a reminder to us of the principle that we've talked a number of times in the, in the New Testament that every part of the body of Christ contributes to the well-being of the body of Christ and the, the proper functioning of the body of Christ. So I don't know what your gift is. There are tests you can take to find out what your gift is, but a simple test that you can take is, what are you burdened for? What does the Lord impress upon your heart that you're burdened for? And then when you step out to do it, you notice sort of just, you know what? This is good. I like doing it, and I'm accomplishing something through this. And people are observing, and they're recognizing your gifts. That's just a basic, simple thing that you can do there. Well, if that's your gift, discover your gift, use it to the glory of God and the advancement of the body of Christ. The Lord knows who you are. He takes record of your name. And someday someone will probably read our story and we'll have a long litany of names and your name will be included in there and the preacher will try and make a joke about how boring it is to read the names of those people. But you know that the Lord took notice. Let's continue to verse 20. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all of Judah and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. I think we see here an example of the way in which the Lord's work is to be done, whether that be by a church, whether it be by individuals, whether it be by a family. And you can look at Hezekiah's life here, who is sort of leading the people, and we see three things. We see his purpose, 
We see his method and we see his result. His purpose, his method, and his result. So we start off with his purpose. It's found in verse 21. It, again, it reads, Every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. What's his purpose? His purpose is to seek God. His purpose wasn't to get the temple back up again. His purpose wasn't to destroy necessarily all of the, uh, the altars to these foreign gods. His purpose wasn't to cut down the crime rate of Judah and society. His purpose wasn't to do all those things necessarily. They'd be things he did. But his purpose, as we see there, was to seek his God. It says in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, this is where Jesus is addressing in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's sort of a, hey, this is what it's all going to be about. You can choose it or, lose it, or not choose it, leave it or, uh, or take it or leave it. But this is kind of what it means to be a follower of mine. And in there he says, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what Hezekiah is doing. His purpose is not to get a good career. His purpose is not to get a good education. His purpose isn't to build a nice, comfortable life here upon the earth. All of those things are things that we're going to probably be doing and raise our kids to do. Get a nice job someday, hopefully, to, to raise and provide for your family. Get a good education to kind of utilize every gift that you have there within you. Get a skill so you can be helpful into a community. Those are important things. But our purpose, Hezekiah's purpose, first and foremost, was to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as we do that, as we sit in a classroom and listen to the lecture coming from the professor, we listen to the words that he or she presents to us, and we say to ourselves, Lord, how does this fit in to my life's calling, to the truth of Scripture, and to the picture of what it is you want to accomplish in my life? That's in the midst of getting an education, seeking first the kingdom of God. As we pursue a career, we do so with the question in the back of our heads, Lord, how will this career help or hinder me in seeking first the kingdom of God? We bring all of those things, if you will, uh, into that, what's that thing for the spaghetti? The colander. You, you kind of pour it into the colander, you let the water pass through, and you let what is true remain. What you're going to eat remain. And that's the truth. And so that's seeking first the kingdom of God. That's how we come up with a purpose in our life. That is our purpose in life. And then notice his method. His method was to do that with all of his heart. Not just to sort of tack it on in life, but with all of his heart. So when he's driving down the road and he's processing something that comes on the radio station or he's looking at something that is on a billboard there or when he's work, walking into his place of work or her place of work and he's considering these things, he's bringing all of that to the, underneath the subjection of Christ and he's saying, Lord, where are you in this? Not just on a Sunday morning, not just at a small group time, not just when I'm with my Christian friends, but in all things that we do, seeking the Lord in those things for His will. This is what it says in Jeremiah. I love the verse. He says, you will seek me and you find, will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. Not just a simple tack on to life. I want to be a well-rounded person. We had folks that used to come to this church to build business contacts. It's not the reason you go to church, to get more people to sell houses to or something like that. You don't just sort of clean up your life a little bit. It's nice to be well-rounded 
I'm a church person. I meet a lot of nice people and friends, and maybe I'll meet a girlfriend or a guy there or something like that. That's not your purpose in having a relationship with God. Your purpose in having a relationship with God is to seek Him with all of your heart. To get closer and closer and closer and closer to Him so that He could shine the light of His glory down upon you. And to reveal the deepest places of our lives. And expose us. And to know that we can lay bare in front of Him and yet feel like we are in the safest place that we could possibly ever be. And as He exposes us, we say, You can have it, Lord. I don't want it. Because that, every little bit of that that needs to be exposed is hindering me from fully having you. Take it. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and seek Him with all of His heart. That's what Hezekiah did. So we see His purpose, we see His method, and then the result, and it says, and the Lord allowed His efforts to prosper. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. This is found in Life Applications Great book, by the way. Jim, let's pick that one up uh, for our bookstore. Um, Life Applications from Every Chapter of the Bible. He simply says, it's a, a right purpose with a true method always produce the highest result. That's true of a church and the way it approaches ministry. It's true of an individual and the way they intrude their walk and their life with the Lord. A right purpose and a true method always produce the highest result. Those are the things that the Lord can work in. And those are the, the ways in which God worked in the life and he used King Hezekiah. Again, debatable, we could say, if not the number one king in the history of the nation of Judah, then number two to King David. But he was a man that brought great reform, revival, true revival, from the inside out to the land of Judah. I believe God wants to do that same thing in our community. I don't think it's a pipe dream. I don't think, oh, stop it. You're trying to, you know, stop it. I believe God wants to revive our hearts and he wants to impact our community. That floods of people, not would come into this church, would come into a relationship with Christ, would experience forgiveness and the mercy of God, even though they don't deserve it at all. And I believe he wants to start that within the heart of believers. Here at Calvary, some of the other churches that are in our community as well. And our job is to seek him. Let, us expo- let him expose every area let him do a work from within that marks a holiness and character in our lives that draws people to himself. Amen? Now, if you looked in your bulletin, you'll notice that the title of the sermon and the passage says it's going to go into next chapter. We're going to actually put, we're going to go to next chapter next week. And so the title was, God, You've Got a Problem. And I don't know about you, but you're probably like, how did he come up with that name? Uh, come back next week and you'll discover why it's entitled, God, You've Got a Problem. We're going to stop there. This week you do have homework. Read ahead, chapter 32 and chapter 33 of uh, the book of Second Chronicles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, uh, I, I just thank you for your faithfulness in helping me uh, to get through today, not feeling well, but, uh, and not even be able to think clearly. Lord, I'm sure there were some things that people are scratching their heads. What is he talking about? But Lord, you know. And Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has the ability to take, Lord, uh, the message and cause it to resonate in our hearts. We thank you that you're our teacher. And Lord, uh, we want to be good students, so to speak. We want to have hearts that are open and ready to learn. So Lord, take the things that we've considered this morning. And Lord, we want them to go beyond the car ride home. We want them to impact us for eternity. We want to be a people that are changed. We, uh, if you've exposed an area of our lives this morning, then we, we want to be right by you.
And so, Lord, even in this next couple of songs of worship, Lord, that truly, these wouldn't just be kind of a neat way to end a service. But, Lord, we would use them, truly, Lord, to cry out to you, to unveil our hearts, to, to let you know, Lord, what, how we're processing what it is you're telling us. Lord, to lay it there on your altar, to give it over to you, that burnt offering we talked about last week, that total consecration. Would you do that this morning, we pray? We, we're confident that that's a prayer according to your will. You would delight to answer. So move in our hearts to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.